The Dallas police had no idea what had begun when they collected the body of a murdered prostitute on December 13, 1990. She was found in plain sight on the 8800 block of Beckley View in the Oak Cliff neighborhood, according to the Dallas Morning News. The kids who first saw her thought they'd stumbled across a mannequin. Instead, it was the nearly nude body of a dark-haired woman, lying face up, wearing only a t-shirt and shot in the back of the head with a 44 caliber bullet. In footage shown on HBO's autopsy program, there was blood on her face and shirt. Detective John Westphalen took over the case and learned from another officer that the victim had been Mary Lou Pratt, 33, another source says 35, a known prostitute who worked that area. On autopsy, the area was described as a hangout for drug dealers, drug addicts, and prostitutes. Matthews and Wicker indicate that Lee Harvey Oswald retreated to a movie theater here after shooting President Kennedy. To the police that day, the murder just seemed like one of the routine risks of the shady business of prostitution. Yet it was soon discovered that this one went beyond the reactive type of killing from anger or over money. There was something more deviant about it. Dr. Elizabeth Peacock, the medical examiner, was going over the body to ascertain the cause and manner of death when she placed her hands on the dead woman's face and prepared to look at the condition of the eyes. She touched the stiffening lid and pushed it open. To her surprise, she saw only muscle and gore. No eye. In fact, it appeared that the eyeball had been removed with surgical care and not merely gouged out in anger with someone's thumb. Moving to the other eye, she opened the lid and saw the same thing. This killer had removed both eyes without making much of a mark on the lids and apparently had taken them with him. Given the bizarre nature of the crime, Westphalen contacted the FBI's VICAP unit with their Violent Criminals Apprehension Program, a computerized database that provides details about prior crimes or criminals who may have some predictive association with the one under study. Matthews and Wicker described their report in The Eyeball Killer. Given the apparent ritual involved in the incident, the criminal behavior specialists suggested that the killer had murdered for pleasure and had taken the eyes as souvenirs to help him relive the erotic sensations of his violence. In the way of all such killers, eventually the vividness of his memory would diminish, along with the sense of power he'd gained, and he likely would seek to renew it. Hence, he'd be prowling the streets, looking for an opportunity to kill again. The police placed this information in a file. They were aware of the danger, but had no real evidence from the scene to provide any leads. It was rumored that Mary Lou Pratt and another prostitute, Susan Peterson, had ripped off stolen goods from a warehouse belonging to one of their customers. It seemed logical to believe that the man had gotten his revenge but investigators could not discover who he was. The mutilation was kept from the media and the back page report of the crime was soon forgotten. The case went cold. While two Hispanic brothers were questioned, based on a tip, there was no evidence against them. Two months passed before the police had reason to think of it again, and when they did, they recalled an incident that had happened around the same time. Veronica, a prostitute named Flacca for her unnaturally skinny frame, was familiar to officers John Matthews and Regina Williams, who patrolled as partners along Oak Cliff's Jefferson Boulevard. Matthews would later pen the eyeball killer about the case and his part in helping to solve it. 
He'd spotted Veronica at the Star 8 Motel in mid-December, where the street girls often brought customers. She'd looked pretty bad that night, and she told the officers that on the previous evening, a man who'd picked her up had tried to kill her. Indeed, he'd raped her. She had a wound on her head to show how brutal he'd been. She'd barely escaped, she said, and had hidden from him until she could get to a friend's place for help. Violence was just part of the lifestyle, so there was not much the officers could do for her, nor any reason they should link her incident with what had happened to Mary Lou Pratt. But when they saw her in a light blue truck on December 15th and tried to arrest the man, she insisted that he was the one who'd saved her from her attacker and ought to be let go. The driver was a man who called himself Speedy, and the address on his driver's license listed a home on El Dorado Avenue, not far from there. He said he had a wife, Dixie, and that he and Veronica were just friends. The officers passed the story on to the homicide unit, just in case it proved to be significant in some way. They would eventually have cause to remember it, because on February 10, 1991, another prostitute, 27-year-old Susan Peterson, was found murdered. Peterson was nearly nude, with her t-shirt pulled up to display her breasts in the same manner as Pratt. She'd been shot three times, in the top of the head, in the left breast, and point-blank in the back of the head. One bullet had pierced her heart, and another entered her brain. A clump of hair lay on her chest. She'd been dumped in South Dallas, just outside city limits, and the ME found that this victim bore another grisly similarity. Her eyes had been surgically removed. There'd been no bleeding, Matthews points out, and only two small cuts. So now they knew they had a repeat killer, one who apparently operated from ritual, just as the FBI report had said. Even worse, two days before her murder, Peterson had indicated to a patrol officer that she might know who Mary Lou Pratt's killer was. She hadn't offered an identification then, and now that information was gone, along with her. But it appeared that the offender had taken Peterson to the same place to kill her as he'd taken Pratt. That helped to establish what geographical profilers would term his zone of familiarity. He likely lived or worked in the area and was almost certainly a resident of Dallas rather than a roving stranger passing through town. Matthews and Williams thought about what Veronica had said and she was still telling the same story about how she'd nearly been killed. She was a known liar and generally made little sense, but her consistency made her story more credible. Then she added that she had actually witnessed Pratt being murdered, but she couldn't identify the house to where she'd been taken to be raped and beaten, so she proved to be a useless source. Leads came in from people who'd seen or who knew someone who they suspected to be the killer, but nothing panned out. The media soon dubbed the vicious attacker the Dallas Ripper. The area hookers and the police believed that the killer was probably white and would therefore only target white prostitutes, as he'd done twice already. Special Agent Judd Ray, the FBI supervisor for that region, was on the case. In an interview for HBO, he said that, in general, the killers are intraracial. In other words, they stick to their own kind. But there were rare cases in which they crossed over. Because profiles are based on probabilities, this killer was probably white, and any future victims would be as well. Ray knew that the killer who mutilates might have other strange fetishes as well, such as drinking blood, so it was possible that he had a history of mental instability. 
Several detectives also believed that the offender had some medical background, but no one could locate a case in which this type of mutilation had occurred before. Two squad cars were assigned to the area to keep watch over the late-night activities. Because the first two murders had been two months apart, they wondered if they might see another such incident in April. But the killer took them by surprise. On March 18th, despite stepped-up police patrols, a black part-time prostitute, Shirley Williams, 41, was murdered. Her nude body was found lying on its side near a school and blood pooled from her face onto the street. The medical examiner who came to the scene rolled back her eyelids, fearing the worst, and discovered that this was the third victim in the series. The eyes were gone. Williams also had facial bruises and a broken nose, probably from being punched, and she'd been shot through the top of her head and in the face. Again, there were no fingerprints and no semen. If the killer had had sex with these women, he'd been careful to use a condom. In fact, an unwrapped condom lay next to the body. But he'd not been nearly as careful this time as he removed the eyes. He'd slashed at her face as if he didn't quite know how to perform this deed. And in the eye socket, he'd broken off the tip of what turned out to be an X-Acto knife. Perhaps he'd been rushed, someone speculated. It had been late when she'd disappeared. A background check indicated that Williams had been with friends the night before, getting high on drugs. She'd also told her daughter that she'd be home that night. It was raining at the time, so Williams had put on a yellow slicker. The friend said that she'd gotten into a car, and that was the last that anyone had seen of her. Another prostitute identified in Matthew's book as Brenda said that a few evenings before Williams had been murdered, a white man had tried to kill her. She offered a description of an older man with salt and pepper hair who drove a green or brown station wagon. She thought she recalled a mustache and slight beard stubble. His skin had been brownish, but he was not African-American. He'd invited her into his car and wanted to take her somewhere to have sex. She'd resisted because she had her own idea of where to go and was careful never to leave familiar territory. That had made him angry. He'd shouted about whores doing him wrong and had acted in such a way that she'd felt forced to spray him with mace. But he kept driving, so she jumped from the car while it was still moving. The experience had shaken her. The police believed that Williams had been murdered in the area, probably outside somewhere, and that meant her clothing ought to turn up. A yellow slicker would not be difficult to spot, so they set about scouring likely spots to have sex in private, kill, and perform this mutilation. They searched a field about a mile away, but came up with nothing. In any event, whether or not she was even his actual target for that night, Shirley Williams was the victim of a serial killer, and one who did not stick with a specific victim type. That would make the investigation more complicated. The Dallas police force now had to face this fact, and the FBI got more fully involved. The body, too, was a crime scene, and the criminalists at the lab would go over it with precision instruments to try to collect even some small bit of evidence They'd also look at each piece of potential evidence that police officers picked up from the scene. Criminalist Charlie Lynch took over this aspect of the investigation. He'd looked at Williams's body prior to the autopsy and, with tape, had removed hairs from the back of her neck. He then placed them under a microscope to examine their pattern, shape, and consistency. Different races yield different types of hair, 
as do different parts of the body. Lynch identified the hair found on Williams as a pubic hair from a Caucasian. That meant it was not from the victim. It wasn't much, and it didn't help the police to track someone down, but it would come in handy once a suspect was identified. Helpfully, the gun that had killed Mary Lou Pratt was identified by the ballistics lab as the same one that had killed Shirley Williams. That was good because the Williams mutilation could have easily been problematic in court for a linkage analysis. And while a different gun had been used on the second victim, her mutilation was so similar to Pratt's that there'd be no trouble claiming that those crimes were linked to a single offender. Anyone could have more than one gun. There was nothing unusual about that in Texas. Given three murders in their territory, Matthews and Smith thought about what they'd heard on the street over the past month and turned their attention to the story that Veronica had told about seeing Mary Lou Pratt murdered. They recalled the man they had stopped, Speedy, and decided to run a check on his address. Yet, when they researched it, they found that the property was listed in the name of Fred Albright, who owned some properties near where the first body had been found. But Albright was deceased. That was curious, as was the next thing they learned. A few days earlier, a frightened woman had called the deputy constable to discuss a man named Charles Albright, who was Fred's son. She once had worked in a clothing store at the mall, and Albright, a customer, had come in frequently and given her gifts. Her fellow workers had disliked him, but she had decided to go out with him. She soon had reason to regret that decision, and she considered him to be dangerous. As Matthews and Wicker tell it, Albright revealed to her that he was a professional con man and that he possessed a lot of stolen property. Although he was married, he'd convinced this woman to move into one of his rental properties, where he then came for sex. She said that his demands became weirder until he outright scared her, especially his obsession with knives and eyes. She moved out, got married, and moved on with her life, but remained afraid, even years later, that Albright would find her and kill her. The best piece of information she offered was that she was aware that Mary Lou Pratt and Albright had been acquainted. When the officers looked into Speedy's history, it turned out that he had a long criminal record, including a conviction for aggravated assault on a child. Not only that, a woman named Dixie popped up in the records, and the officers recalled that Speedy had said that was his wife's name. The facts and associations were growing more compelling by the minute. They knew they had to check this guy out. Detective Westphalen advised Matthews and Smith to show Brenda some photos to see if she could pick out the man who had picked her up and threatened her. She looked over the collection of mugshots and, without hesitation, pointed to a photo of Charles Albright. The next step was to contact Veronica and show her the photos. She was in prison and it was difficult to get her to cooperate. But in the end, she too selected Albright as her attacker. That was two for two. Good corroboration, even if these reports were from prostitutes with drug habits. It was time to move in on Albright. Only four days after Shirley Williams had been brought to the morgue, the police had a warrant in hand for Albright's arrest and a plan to apprehend him. At that time, thanks to the prostitutes, he could be charged with attempted murder and attempted assault. They could hold him in search for better evidence against him in the three murders. A couple of hours after midnight on March 22nd, 
members of the elite tactical squad came together to surround Albright's Oak Cliff home on El Dorado. They spotted a station wagon in the driveway similar to the one described by Brenda. They called the house to make sure a male was inside, and a man answered. At the signal, they moved in. A window was smashed, and stun grenades were tossed inside. Albright would later complain about this procedure and asked why they hadn't just knocked. Others broke in through the door and roused Albright and his wife from bed. Dixie began to scream and demanded to know what they were doing. They asked Albright where Speedy was, but he seemed to be confused by the question. Later, they realized that, fortuitously, Speedy had simply used Albright's address on his license. He didn't live there. Albright and Dixie were hustled off to the police station for interrogation, while investigators searched his house and prepared to look at other properties listed under his deceased father's name. One item of interest found in Albright's home was a collection of red condoms, since that same color of condom had been found next to Shirley Williams' body. Albright also had a collection of books about serial killers and some Nazi literature. According to the autopsy program, but no other source, the results of the search in his home turned up an obsession with dolls and eyeless masks, and Hollinsworth said there was a collection of female Landro figurines. The HBO producers indicate that the police believed this obsession with dolls was connected with what would be learned about Albright. He had a fascination with eyes. The police also recovered debris from his vacuum cleaner and a collection of guns from his secret hiding place. At first, he'd said he owned no guns, but caught in a lie, he told them where to look. One weapon was a Smith & Wesson 44 caliber revolver, the type of gun they were looking for, but they had to test it to be certain it was the murder weapon. At another of Albright's properties, they discovered several X-Acto knives with razor-sharp blades that could have been used to perform the precision surgery done to the victims. In fact, the blade from such an implement had broken off in the third murder victim. At the police station, Westphalen questioned Dixie, a former widow, first, and she was aghast that anyone would think that her husband had committed such violent crimes. He was an easygoing guy, liked by everyone. In fact, she offered an alibi. He was in bed with her every night. He did have an early morning paper route, that was true, but he was always in bed when her alarm went off. When confronted with the fact that her husband had a criminal record, she admitted that she had not known about it. She also offered no reason why he would have condoms since she was past menopause. She'd known about them but had never questioned him. Dixie continued to stand by him, but these revelations must have shaken her. In the early morning hours, Westphalen finally questioned Albright, who adamantly denied knowing any of the murder victims, or any prostitutes, and refused to admit that he had anything to do with murder. He pointed out that his criminal record was for property crimes and offered a plausible story about the sexual assault conviction. He did know Speedy, one of his tenants, but did not know why his address was on the man's driver's license. Later on, Albright's renter, Speedy, was questioned because he'd been with Veronica and knew something about that assault. He told the police that Veronica had never brought Albright to his place, although they firmly believed that he had. Speedy remained a viable suspect as well, especially by Albright's friends, but Hollinsworth indicates that he hardly seemed like a likely candidate for such skill with an X-Acto knife.
Speedy insisted that it was not Albright from whom he'd saved Veronica, but rather a Hispanic male whom he did not know. Despite his loose association, he was never as solid a suspect as Albright was. But even with him, there were questions. The more investigators learned about Albright, the less certain they were that they had the right guy. He did not fit the profile of a serial killer, and he had an alibi. He had a master's degree, knew several languages, was a former science teacher, was charming, was in a seemingly satisfying relationship, and seemed completely at ease with having his home searched and his gun tested. He did not abuse substances. Associates who were questioned about him remained loyal, certain the police had the wrong man. Albright had coached football, helped with Cub Scouts, and was kind to children. He was both articulate and artistic, a cultivated man accomplished in many things from piano to bullfighting, who seemed anything but a murderer. He was generous, friendly, and helpful to people in need. He was also apparently too old. At 57, he defied the stereotype of the angry young lust killer who was generally in his 20s or 30s. According to what was then known about most serial killers, they tended to be loners and losers, taking only menial work and not maintaining relationships for very long. They were undereducated, narcissistic, and often in search of short-term gratification. While Texas had not seen many serial killers until then, and the Dallas police had dealt with none, they knew from the FBI profile what to expect. Albright just did not fit. He claimed that the officers would not find a woman who would say he'd treated her badly. But on the other hand, with more digging, it turned out that there was more to Albright after all. Occasionally, someone had a story about Albright's temper. He'd once quit a job over a minor incident. Another time, he'd commented that he hates prostitutes and wanted to kill them. And it was noted that Albright lived a somewhat parasitic life as Dixie paid all the bills. He'd inherited a substantial amount of money after his father died, but he'd squandered that. He'd also clearly had a secretive life, going to prostitutes for years without his wife ever knowing. He'd lied several times during his interrogation, had a record of shoplifting, and was clearly a womanizer. Some people saw him as a smooth operator, stretching the truth and using people for his own gain, but keeping a likable persona as a way to exploit them. So, he wasn't squeaky clean, but he also was not what any of the cops would have expected a serial killer to be. That posed a problem for the investigation. If they arrested and charged the wrong man, the media, which had already played up the story, would skewer them. Not to mention, such a mistake could give the real killer the opportunity to kill again or leave the area. Yet Albright's background, even filled as it was with accomplishment, supports the possibility of a diagnosis of psychopathy. The manipulative, intelligent charmer who lies easily, exploits others, and honors only himself without remorse for harm he may do to others. Such people are slick and secretive, and even people close to them may be fooled by their facades. Robert Hare has done the most extensive work on the notion of the psychopath, devising the psychopathy checklist and revising it in 1985. The PCLR diagnosis is formed from a semi-structured interview with the people assessed 
along with information from their files. Hare and his associates clarified a set of diagnostic criteria, characterizing it by such traits as a lack of remorse or empathy, shallow emotions, charm, deception, egocentricity, glibness, and the persistent violation of social norms. They often present themselves as something other than they really are as a way to manipulate others for their own gain. They're often parasitic. There was little doubt among the police, after they learned more about him, that Albright had nearly perfected this persona. Matthews and Wicker, as well as Hollinsworth, provided a detailed portrait of Albright's childhood. He was born on August 10, 1933. His mother, Dell, and father, Fred, had adopted him from an orphan's home, and it was clear from the start that Dell was in control. She was a strict elementary school teacher, and she used that position to shape and form her precious young son. She doted on him and overprotected him, but did not show much outward affection. Bedford et al. says that she sometimes dressed Charles as a girl and gave him a doll to play with. Other sources confirm this, and Hollinsworth says that she would change him frequently to keep dirt off him. She also accelerated his education, getting him skipped ahead two grades. Whatever he set out to do, he did well. When he was given a gun, Charles killed small animals and told his mother he wanted to be a taxidermist, so she helped him to learn how to skin and stuff his dead birds. His products were lifelike, but he was not allowed to complete them with the glass eyes sold in taxidermy shops because they were too expensive and Dell was frugal in the extreme. Instead, she had him use buttons. In other words, eyes were forbidden. He may well have developed a desire to get the eyes that his mother had denied him. In school, although he was a good student, he became a bit of a troublemaker for petty thefts and at age 13 was arrested for aggravated assault. He also went to a prostitute during adolescence. By the time he was 15 in 1949, he'd made sufficiently decent grades to graduate from high school and with the help of forged transcripts, got into North Texas State University. But then his luck ran out. At age 16, the police caught him with some petty cash from a cash register, two handguns and a rifle. For that, despite Dell's strenuous efforts on his behalf, he received a year in jail. Having apparently learned his lesson, upon his release, he set out to be a productive citizen, going to Arkansas State Teachers College and majoring in pre-med studies. He also learned several languages. He was popular, but people were aware that he often bragged and exaggerated things about himself, including his bedroom habits. Some people said that it was second nature for him to lie, especially because he claimed to have bedded dozens of women. In subjects he liked, he excelled, but he also took to stealing tests and changing his grades in the school files when he needed to. He got his girlfriend to steal keys for him. He was active on campus in several clubs, but had a reputation for being reckless and perverse. And there was one incident that several publications have mentioned as significant because eyes figured prominently in it. One of his football teammates dated a girl with almond-shaped eyes, and when they broke up, he tossed out the photos and got a new girlfriend. He had a few photographs of himself with this new girl, and one day, he noticed something odd. Albright had cut out her eyes and, in their place, 
he'd pasted the almond-shaped eyes of the former girlfriend. Albright had also pasted the eyes in other places, such as the ceiling and bathroom. It was bizarre, but apparently not uncharacteristic of him. Found with stolen items, he was expelled from the college before graduation, but not prosecuted. He wasn't phased. He just falsified his degrees, stealing the right documents, forging signatures, and giving himself bachelor's and master's degrees that he didn't earn. Getting married to his college girlfriend, who became a teacher, he took up a seemingly normal life and they had a daughter. Albright failed to hold a job for long, but whatever he did work at, he mastered. Illustrator, bullfighter, hairstylist, designer, artist, carpenter. He continued to cheat by forging checks and claiming false credentials, and he was caught in his deception while teaching at a high school, but he always managed to get probation for his illegal acts. He learned that a little charm goes a long way. He'd even been a competent teacher. But his marriage fell apart. In 1965, he and his wife separated, finally divorcing in 1974, although Bedford et al. claims it occurred in 1975. But while his marriage may have ended, his criminal activities did not. In fact, he grew even bolder. Albright was caught stealing hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise from a hardware store and received a two-year prison sentence. Yet, he served less than six months before he was out again. He worked hard to become more presentable, converting to Catholicism and ingratiating himself with people from the parish. In 1981, when he was 48, his mother, Dell, died. Albright went to find his birth mother, whom Dell had told him was a married and brilliant law student, and managed to meet her. And she apparently had never been a law student. He'd later tell someone that she was a prostitute, although there was no evidence for this. That same year, while Albright was visiting some friends, he sexually molested their nine-year-old daughter. They reported him, and he was prosecuted, but once again got away with his crime. He pled guilty and received only probation. He later claimed that he was innocent, but had pled to avoid a hassle. Still, it went on his record and would come to haunt him in later years. He was now a sexual predator. During those years, according to prostitutes in town, he frequented their hangouts and paid them well, most likely from the money he'd inherited from his father's death. A friend admitted that he'd known about Albright's thefts and said that many of the gifts he gave out were items he'd stolen. Then, in 1985, Albright met Dixie in Arkansas. After his father's death, he invited her to come and live in his home. It wasn't long before she was paying the bills from her menial job, even taking out a loan to do so. She accepted Albright's excuses for not working, despite his intelligence and accomplishments, and let him con her into taking care of him. The one concession he made was to take on a paper route that sent him out into the streets during the early morning hours. That may well have been so that he could continue to visit prostitutes without raising her suspicions. Alfred Jones, Albright's juvenile probation officer from decades earlier, told Westphalen that Albright had a way of not facing up to reality or responsibility. He had his own sense of values and could lie so easily that he convinced himself he was telling the truth. In other words, like many psychopaths, according to a theory offered by Alcee Carlyle, Albright compartmentalized. He did what he needed to deflect others from his secrets 
and set up different sets of values for different life frames. His secret life grew darker and more perverse because there was no accountability, save to his ideas and addictions. But the morality for his acts was entirely of his own making. The murder cases seemed to be falling apart. Investigators who searched were unable to find evidence that any murders had been committed at Albright's house, and they did not find bloody clothes or shoes, although they found socks and underwear soaking in bleach. Worse, his 44 Magnum tested negatively as the gun that had killed Mary Pratt and Shirley Williams, and Dixie had supplied garage receipts to prove that their cars had broken down and were thus unavailable at the time of the first two murders. Still, there was circumstantial evidence they could use, and they were able to detain him on the charge of attempted murder while they continued to build a case. In Speedy's house, for example, they found a stash of pornographic magazines, along with a structure that allowed for a practice of autoerotic sexual asphyxia, semi-strangulation to achieve a more powerful orgasm. As landlord, Albright had a key, so they looked hard for evidence that he used the place when Speedy was away. Veronica had mentioned this place, and Officer Matthews believed that Albright came here to carry out secretive activities. There was also evidence from hair analysis. The police had confiscated blankets from Albright's trucks and sent them to Charlie Lynch in the lab, along with the debris from Albright's vacuum. The blankets had hair and fibers, as did the debris. In fact, from the vacuum, they isolated some hair that was consistent with Shirley Williams, an African-American. There were not enough strands to perform the type of DNA analysis used at the time. Albright agreed to let the police take their hair and blood samples from him, and Lynch soon called Westphalen to tell him that hair found on one of the bodies was consistent with Albright's hair samples. In addition, hair found on the blankets from his truck appeared to match hair from the prostitutes. As good as that sounded, hair was considered class evidence, not unique evidence. In other words, a strand of hair might be consistent with hair from a victim or suspect, but it could not be proven with certainty to have originated with that person. Nevertheless, on March 26th, the district attorney filed capital charges against Albright in the deaths of Mary Pratt, Shirley Williams, and Susan Peterson. The court appointed Brad Lawler as Albright's attorney. It wasn't a slam-dunk case by any stretch, so investigators knew they had to work much harder to find a way to pin the murders on Albright. Then, another prostitute offered an interesting report. Mary Beth was in prison. She told the police that she knew Albright, and she didn't much care for the memory. On December 13th, the same night on which Mary Lou Pratt had been killed, Mary Beth had been standing outside a motel. Suddenly, a man grabbed her and put a knife to her throat, forcing her into a car and slapping her in the face. She tried to struggle, but had been unable to fight him. She remembered that he'd driven her out to a field and thrown her onto a blanket there. He kept hitting her and punching her. Then, she said, he'd opened a case, and she'd seen that it held a collection of metal cylinders with sharp-pointed blades attached to them. He'd reached for one and used it to cut open her blouse. He then discarded the blade and got another one to make another cut. At that point, she'd passed out from fear, and when she came to, he was gone. With this story, investigators believed they could find more, so they set about interviewing other prostitutes in the area. Tina, who had beautiful eyes, also had a story to tell. 
she said that she'd once dated Albright. For the most part, he'd been polite and good with her until the last time they'd gone out. They'd been in his truck and he'd treated her quite a bit rougher than usual. She'd run from him then and had seen him again on the night that Shirley had died. Albright had driven by them and Tina had gotten into another car so she did not actually witness Albright pick Shirley up. But when she got back, Shirley was gone. She showed the police the field where Albright had taken her and a search turned up an old blue blanket, some condoms, and a crumpled yellow raincoat like the one that Shirley had been wearing the night she disappeared. It had blood on it. That was a significant find. This was more than just circumstantial evidence, to be sure, but the more the better, especially when it was this specific. How many people wore these yellow slickers? In addition, Willie Upshaw, to whom Albright had written a number of checks and who was serving time for the illegal possession of a firearm, said that Albright had another 44 caliber weapon that the police had not found. They discovered that he'd purchased it in his father's name. Unless they found the weapon, they could prove nothing. But its absence was suggestive. Upshaw had also been with Albright on the day in March when his car had broken down, and it was his contention that Albright did have a car the night Shirley was killed. In addition, the police search had turned up several stolen cars, so Albright could easily have used one of those. There was a sufficient amount of information and evidence to move forward toward a grand jury hearing. The charges against Albright shifted and changed as the prosecutors prepared for trial. First, the three murders were attributed to him, and then the unsolved 1988 stabbing murder of an Oak Cliff area prostitute based on several strands of hair found on her that were consistent with Albright's, although her eyes had not been removed. Then Albright came up with an alibi for that one. He was out of town, so that charge was dropped. Given the type of evidence available, a grand jury reduced the capital murder charges to murder, so the death penalty was off the table, and eventually the district attorney's office settled on prosecuting Albright for only one murder, Shirley Williams, without explaining why they were doing so. The judge said that, should they lose, they could not reinstate the other charges for later cases. It wouldn't matter. The Williams case was their strongest one, and if they lost that, they would surely lose the others too. The judge knocked down the bond to $750,000, but Albright could not afford that any more than the original $3 million, so he remained in prison. Thus, when his trial date was finally set for December 2, 1991, Albright faced prosecution for the murder of Shirley Williams, which carried a sentence of life in prison. However, the court ruled that the prosecution could bring in the other cases, based on the linkage. Once the legal issues were worked out, the trial, initially delayed, began. Dan Haygood, Tommy Shook, and Mike Basillo made up the prosecution's team, and among their star witnesses were the two patrol officers who had followed their instincts and linked together the prostitutes who'd complained about Albright. The prosecution had a theory that Albright had become enraged after two prostitutes, one of them Pratt, had ripped him off one night. A prostitute who'd been with Albright and Susan Peterson, the second victim, testified about how he'd picked them up together one night and beaten them severely. In fact, he'd handcuffed the witness and beaten her with an electric cord for half an hour. Albright also had enormous gasoline bills, ostensibly from cruising. 
On December 7th, Special Agent Judd Ray testified about the linkage analysis and the fact that the killer would have been comfortable in or familiar with the Oak Cliff area. In many different sources, he's quoted as saying, What was interesting to us was the method in which these victims, these body parts, were taken. In my professional opinion, it's doubtful that you would have had more than one person that deranged living in the city. Dr. Peacock, who had done the first autopsy, stated how difficult it was to cut the muscles and the optic nerve that connected the eyes to the skull. She described how precise the killer's method had been, adding that he would have had to have some skill. But the prosecution suffered several blows. The yellow raincoat worn by Williams when she disappeared had been inadvertently thrown away, though the jury had seen it. Upshaw had changed his story. Albright's neighbors supported the fact that he did not have a car during the time of the murder, and Veronica had decided to testify for the defense. Against her original story, she now said that Albright had never done anything to her, and she could not be shaken from that position. She said that the police had bullied her into saying that her attacker was Albright. But the heart of the proceedings, and the piece that became highly controversial, rested on testimony by forensic experts. Charlie Lynch discussed his analysis of the hair specimens, as detailed in Matthews and Wicker. Among his finds were Eight hairs that matched Shirley Williams' hair came from Albright's vacuum cleaner. Six of Williams' hair came from the blue blanket found in the Oak Cliff field with a yellow raincoat. Three pubic hairs from that blanket matched Albright's, and the head hair on the raincoat matched his. His pubic hair also matched one strand of pubic hair lifted from Williams' neck. Albright's head hair was found near a wound on Williams's face, another on her back, and two on her left hand. Three head hairs from Susan Peterson were on a blanket in Albright's truck, as were four hairs likely from Pratt. A squirrel hair was found in the vacuum and on the blanket picked up in the field. In addition, Speedy's hair did not match any of the samples. But Lynch had matched Albright to the fourth murdered prostitute, and for that case, Albright had an alibi. That put a dent in the testimony about how scientific hair analysis was. And the defense was ready for that. During the trial, fully documented in the Dallas Morning News, plenty of people, including Dixie, spoke out on Albright's behalf, with Dixie giving her rendition of their broken-down car. Glenda Dunham, a newspaper delivery person, said that Albright was always on time to deliver the papers with her, implying that he could not have taken the time required to pick up, kill, and mutilate a prostitute. Defense attorney Brad Lollar suggested that Speedy, who'd recently skipped town, had committed the murders. An empty box of 44 caliber ammunition had been found behind his home, and several rare silver-tipped bullets were among the collection of trash inside, the same type of bullet that had killed two of the victims. Yet none of the prostitutes who claimed to have known or seen Albright were familiar with Speedy. Microscopist and small particles expert Samuel James Pelinick was Lawler's answer to Charles Lynch, although up until the trial, he'd actually agreed with Lynch. Then he changed his mind. On December 12th, he said that Lynch's analysis of the hair fragments was sloppy and not conclusive enough to make the claims that Lynch was making. The hair samples were too fragmentary, some that Lynch claimed were human were actually animal, and the gray hairs had lacked pigment, 
which made them difficult to match. Yet under cross-examination, Pelinick undermined his credibility when he said that if he'd had another week or two, his findings might have changed. He also re-examined the evidence and came back in agreement with Lynch on several specimens. Another criminalist also agreed with Lynch. It was up to the jury to decide. After a day of deliberation, on December 18th, they returned their verdict. Charles Albright was found guilty of Shirley Williams's murder. He received a sentence of five years to life, and his attorney promised to appeal. Lawler insisted that an innocent man had been convicted. Albright was sent to the Clements Unit of the Texas Department of Corrections in Amarillo. Albright's attorney appealed the case based on a lack of evidence against him for the murder conviction. He also said that the trial court erred in not conducting a separate hearing on punishment. In 1994, the Texas Court of Appeals' 5th District published an opinion in which they dismissed Albright's first point of error, said that the appellant had provided nothing for review on the second issue, and they overruled the third point of error because the issue had not been raised in the court. In fact, the judge had pronounced a sentence after Albright's attorney agreed that there was no reason not to. Albright never objected to it when it occurred or when he made a motion for a new trial. His objection in this appeal then was not considered timely as required by law. The final sentence of the published opinion was, We uphold the trial court's judgment. Hollinsworth visited Albright in prison for a 1993 story in Texas Monthly, and he posed Albright's manner and words in such a way that it was clear that the man was psychopathic, deceptive, charming, manipulative, and without either self-insight or remorse for what he'd done. He assured Hollinsworth that he was not going to tell you anything that's not true, and yet his history of chronic lies, theft, deception, and fraud belie his apparent sincerity. Hollinsworth indicated then that Albright had appealed to Barry Sheck's Innocence Project for assistance. Situated at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law and founded in 1992, it was set up as a non-profit legal clinic to do post-conviction DNA testing for cases in which biological evidence was available. Most of our clients are poor, forgotten, and have used up all their legal avenues for relief, the organization's website says. Because the analysis of the hair evidence in Albright's case was controversial, and because the Innocence Project looks at the ways evidence is handled and assists those for whom evidence can be tested, and whom also seem deserving, Albright apparently hoped to see justice done. But his case did not involve DNA testing, and as of this video, there's no record that the clinic has assisted or is assisting him. A group of women in the Department of Psychology at Radford University in Virginia published a detailed biography of Albright online with their analysis of the evidence against him for the murder of which he was convicted. They concluded that after reading the book by Matthews and Wicker, along with news articles, we feel Mr. Albright may have been wrongly convicted of Shirley Williams's murder and that whomever killed her likely killed the other two as well. We cannot guess if he's killed others but lean towards his innocence in these three that qualify him as a serial killer. Albright's friends agree. Many who have known Albright for years, but were nevertheless entirely unaware of his criminal record or dealings with prostitutes, still think Speedy is the true offender and that a miscarriage of justice took place at the trial. In the Dallas Morning News, before the trial began, 
it was reported that Albright was a suspect in two other murders as well, both in Arkansas, but nothing ever came of those cases. Albright resided at the Clements Unit of the Texas Department of Corrections in Amarillo. He no longer corresponded with Dixie, and Matthews and Wicker stated that he's been observed showing interest in news reports that indicate eyes have been gouged or cut out. Many of the available books on serial killers fail to list this offender. Eric Hickey includes him as a paraphilic serial killer, but without Matthews's book and Hollinsworth article from which Hickey takes his material, Albright might not have surfaced beyond local Texas sources. Hollinsworth and Hickey add that in prison, Albright subscribed to a magazine about iridology and possessed the first issue of Omni magazine from 1978, which features a large eyeball on the cover. HBO's autopsy series adds that he spent his time drawing eyeballs and decorating his prison cell with them. They showed footage of him in the act of drawing an eye, with his eyeball artwork pasted to the wall of his cell. In 2005, the season finale of a CBS show called Cold Case featured a boy who liked removing the eyes from his toys and who grew up to become a serial killer who cut out the eyes from his victims and replaced them with shiny black marbles. Albright died in the West Texas Regional Medical Facility in Lubbock, Texas in August 2020. He was 87 years old.